good morning. We are continuing with Acts chapter 6 this morning, finishing up the chapter, verses 8 to 15. This is going to be page 914 if you're using the Bibles here at the church under the seats in front of you. And we're coming to a pivotal moment in the life of the young church. Uh, this is, you know, up to this time, they have been, all the Christians have been hanging out in Jerusalem. And the ministry and the martyrdom of Stephen is going to be sort of a transitional point that takes them out of the city and, and, and moves them on to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave them. And so, um, actually, Sarah, if you can pull up my outline at this point, I just want to give you guys sort of a big picture view of the book of Acts. It's a little small, but basically we're, one way you can look at the structure of Acts is by looking at what Jesus tells them in the beginning. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you can see what we've covered so far. They've been in the city of Jerusalem. So chapter 2, we saw Pentecost, the Christian fellowship among the believers there as a result of the Spirit being amongst them. Chapter 3, we have a lame beggar healed, which leads then to Peter's speech in Solomon's portico, and then they get taken before the council because of all, the, all that's going on. They're warned, right? The council can't really do much except warn them at that point. They say, you can't talk in Jesus' name. And then uh, we get this continued sort of uh, honeymoon stage for the church where they're living in, in unity and boldness. Then we have Satan's counterattack beginning at that point in chapter 5, first with moral corruption in the church, Ananias and Sapphira lying about their gifts to the church. And then uh, secondly, we have uh, external attacks coming with persecution from the Jewish leaders. The apostles are beaten. Um, and then uh, in chapter 6, we saw last week, the beginning of chapter 6, the there's an attack in terms of the unity of the church. Administratively, uh, the apostles defend the unity of the church. And now we're going to look at today the arrest of Stephen. Uh, and so Stephen's story is sort of the hinge here um, that will lead to uh, eventually the church being scattered there at the beginning of, of chapter 8. And then we'll see in Judea and Samaria, Philip's ministry, Peter's ministry. They are ministering in Judea and Samaria. But pretty quickly, we get to the ends of the earth and exactly where that transition is. I have a question mark because you have to decide. But Paul's ministry sort of moves in that direction as he starts taking the gospel to all sorts of cities and eventually, of course, to Rome. So that's sort of the brief outline of the book. Gives you an idea of where we're at here. This is a transitional moment. Um... So let's go ahead then and read our text. But first, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Dear Lord, Father, we are grateful to you for your words, which lead us in a world that is very confusing. Lord, we thank you that you give us truth and that you call us to live by it. And you give us strength to live by it. Strengthen your people today to listen. Lord, to be open to hearing what you have to say, how you confront them. And Lord, of course, to receive the comfort of your goodness and your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is your definition of Christian success? Are you a successful Christian if the unbelievers you work with know you're a Christian and they like you? 
Now that guy, you know, he's a good guy. Uh, you know, he makes Christianity look pretty attractive to me. Or, or are you a, a successful Christian if you, uh, you know all the, the arguments, you got all the facts down, and you can demolish your opponents? Uh, are you a successful Christian if you pray a certain amount each day and you are still on track with your annual Bible reading program here at the end of January? Uh, even if you come up with a good answer for, for what a successful Christian looks like, you may find when you examine your life, you appear to believe a different definition. You know that it's, it's not a, a certain number of good works or conversions that makes you a successful Christian, and yet you, you still feel like a failure because your adult kids don't go to church anymore or because you don't feel like much of an evangelist or your giving to the church is not as generous as it could be or you don't have some sort of distinct job in the church. There may be some ways you can be helpfully challenged in those failures, but what is it that actually defines success for a Christian? I think Stephen is the perfect one to answer this question for us because he is basically perfect, right? I mean, this guy can do no wrong. He has everything going for him. He's got all the virtues, He's, he's doing wonders and signs, and no one can beat him in an argument. He was probably pretty handsome, too. He's got everything going for him. I remember going to a freshman guy's Bible study in college, and we had this thing going on where the leader would ask a question, and we would all wait a little while, and then eventually someone would answer the question. And then one day, this new guy, and he messed everything up. He answered the questions immediately, and his answers were great. They were, they were perfect. You see, we had grown up as Christians in the, the Christian church. We knew the drill, but this guy had become a believer in high school. He was on a totally different level in terms of his excitement and his joy for God's word. And I was jealous of him. But the Lord was gracious to me. He actually turned out to be one of my dearest friends in college. Don't be jealous of Stephen here. Let him teach you. Let him become a dear friend to you. He may seem perfect, but don't miss this. From a worldly perspective, Stephen is wildly unsuccessful. In this text, at least... He does not appear to convince a single person to follow Jesus. If we peek ahead to chapter 7, his defense, which is by far the longest speech in the book of Acts, doesn't work. It has the exact opposite effect. The people end up closing their ears, rushing at him to lynch him. Is Stephen an unsuccessful Christian? No. Your definition of success is wrong. So what is success, according to Stephen? First, being full of Christ. So my first point, full of Christ.
Christ. Maybe some of you teenagers have had your parents uh, set, kind of put boundaries around what kind of music you listen to or what television you watch or what friends you hang out with or where you go on the internet. And maybe you're not always so happy about those boundaries. Uh, Maybe some of you adults can remember your parents doing that, you know, putting those kinds of boundaries around you. And and it's it's tempting to think of them sort of as this, this barbed wire restraining fence. But But when this is done, right, it's about something much more important. The simple truth that what you put into your hearts will have an impact on what comes out. Maybe you've heard that phrase, uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? Or maybe you like a slightly more sophisticated quote by Peter Lightheart, our brains, like our mouths and bellies, Feed on the world. Learning is feasting, a taking in of the world so that it becomes us, coursing through our brains the way nutrients flow through our blood. This is a biblical concept. Psalm 1 teaches that those who walk in the counsel of the wicked will dry up, but those who plant themselves in God's word will not wither, but will bear good fruit. So what kind of fruit is Stephen bearing? What, what is he full of? Well, if you just look in your Bibles, peek back to where we first start seeing him show up, verse 3 of chapter 6, all of these proto-deacons uh, that we talked about last week are supposed to be of good repute. So they're well, supposed to be well thought of by the people. And they're also supposed to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. How do you know someone's full of the Spirit? Um, well, Galatians 5.22, they bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is almost sort of a catch-all category. They're full of love and kindness and patience and and gentleness, right? These things are all flowing out of them that the Spirit produces. And then uh, full of wisdom, we're told, which, you know, wisdom, that's that's knowing what to do with knowledge. It's it's living rightly. I've, I've heard wisdom compared to a kidney, It filters out what is bad from what is nutritious and sends the good stuff where it needs to go in your body. Teenagers, wisdom is what your parents want you to develop so that eventually you can decide what music you listen to, what television you watch, what friends you hang out with. But it takes time and you have to uh, seek God and ask for wisdom. If you drop down to verse 5 of chapter 6, we continue seeing um, what Stephen was like. Stephen is chosen as one of these deacons, and he actually gets his own special description. He's set apart from the other guys as being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a little repetitive, right? But circling Stephen, it's circling Stephen as being especially full of good things. Uh, faith, he's full of faith. That's not uh, wishful thinking like some people think faith is, but it's rather absolute certain belief in God and his promises. And then verse 8, uh, we're told again, Stephen is full. He's full, full, full. Three fulls. It's, it's almost ominous, right? He's ripe. This is a man who's ready to be harvested. He's, he's full 
of the fruit of the Spirit. He's too good for this earth. He's, he's full of grace and power. And this is the combo you want. You don't want somebody who's full of power but has no grace. But someone who has power and grace, that person is set up to succeed. So you would think. Grace, of course, it has really two, two meanings here. On the one hand, grace is God's unmerited favor, uh, the gifts that he pours out on his people, and Stephen is full of these gifts that God has given to him. Uh, on the other hand, of course, grace, right, it, it, it does something uh, to us. It, it, it rubs off on us. It turns us into gracious people. And so uh, Stephen is also full of grace that flows out to those around him. Uh, he, he, people who are gracious forgive, they're merciful they, they give freely to those who do not deserve to be given to and then he's full of power well that probably uh, describes the great wonders and the signs that he is, is doing and then finally down in verse 10 again we have another description of Stephen in terms of his, his wisdom and the spirit that he has, something that his opponents they cannot withstand they can't stand up to it who does Stephen look like? well he looks like Jesus, doesn't he? he looks like his savior and his king he's ready to be taken home and it's not just the virtues that he does that makes him, uh, that he has that makes him look like Jesus. It's what he does, too. It's his actions, um, right? The wonders and the signs. This is what Jesus did, too. Acts 2.22, Peter says to Jerusalem, This Jesus was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. It proved to you who this guy was, this Jesus was. Well now, right, the wonders, the signs Jesus did, they're being done in Stephen showing us, proving to us. Where's Jesus here? He is in Stephen. He's filling Stephen. And then when these people, they can't withstand Stephen's wisdom, that reminds us of Jesus as well, doesn't it? Luke 20 verse 40 where the Jewish leaders they don't they don't no longer dare to ask Jesus any more questions they can't withstand his wisdom and so from there they progress to lies to false witnesses and to murder just like they will with Stephen he's walking in his savior's footsteps this is Christian success to follow in your king's footsteps, to look like him, to be full of him. Even if, like Stephen, you never convince anyone to follow him. Even if you get yourself killed. You see, people think, you know, if we could just do all those miracles again, if we could do the wonders, the signs, you know, if, if we trained everybody in apologetics so we could just win, win arguments, then... We would convert people. The church would grow. No, 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 no. That's the wrong definition of success. Stephen is better than you're ever going to be at those things. And he doesn't succeed that way. Why? Well, God has a different plan for him. So, is he a successful Christian then? Yes. Yes. He's full of Jesus. 
And the question that we're left with, of course, is how? You know, how, how does he get to look like that? This is a question the text forces us to ask. It, it pushes us to ask. We have to really look at more of the Bible to answer. And, and perhaps the simplest answer, the simplest way to put it, is, uh, you know, we are filled with Christ when we feed on Christ. Uh, sometimes Christians think that Jesus is the one that saves us from sin. He justifies us, makes us right before God. But then, you know, the rest of the Christian life, that's us doing the work of improving ourselves morally. But in fact, we are to never lose sight of Christ because our union with him, it's not just what saves us. It is also the source of all our good fruit. All this stuff that Stephen is full of, that's, that's not just a massive effort of self-will. That's the strength of, of power uh, of Jesus pouring out of him, at work in him. A great passage for us to look at for this is Ephesians chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 19. We looked at this text a couple months ago, but if you want to just turn there briefly, you'll see that in Ephesians 3, verse 16, Paul is praying for the church. And he's praying that uh, believers would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit so that, uh, what? Verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You might be full of Christ. Uh, why? Why? So that you may, he goes on, you may understand the incredibleness, you know, the depth, the height, all these things of Christ's love, and that you might, in verse 19, be filled with all the fullness of God. That, that sounds like Stephen doesn't it? And, and sure enough, then, it's on the basis of this prayer here at the end of chapter 3 that Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say, and now I urge you to walk this way, to bear this kind of fruit. The source is not your own will to make it happen. It is Christ living in you. It is by that power that you are able to grow and to bear good fruit. So, how do you look like Stephen? Well, the answer is at least this. Pray for, seek out, cry out for union with Christ, and, and feed on him. Do that by the means he's given you. The Bible, the sacraments, reflecting on your baptism, participating in the Lord's Supper, prayer. And, and to which we could add other things, right? Like building sp close spiritual relationships with other believers and in participating in Christian service and, and doing your work, whatever it is, for the glory of God. But there's a second thing that Stephen shows us about Christian success. And so secondly, success is suffering with Christ. And so my second point, suffering with Christ. Now, with this text, and you, you guys saw how there's a transition here, there's something new that happens in the city of Jerusalem, too. Um, there's a shift in how especially the people are thinking about Christians. Because so far, they've seen opposition, but it's really been the Jewish leaders. The leaders have been opposing Christians. 
but they have still been popular with the people. And so the leaders, out of fear of the people, they can't really just stamp them out. They can't get rid of them. But that begins to change here. And so we see in verse 9, there's this, uh, a bunch of people belonging to a specific synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freed Men. Uh, freed men is a, is a, was a, a Roman legal term for people who were freed from slavery or their descendants. And so it seems like this synagogue was sort of socioculturally, it was like the bottom of the barrel, the, the, the synagogue for the former slaves. And uh, then most commentators think that the rest of these people mentioned here from all these different cities probably joined that synagogue. They could have been other synagogues, but likely people think they joined that synagogue having a lot of cultural similarities with these people, these former slaves. Uh, and it's possible even that Saul uh, was part of this synagogue. He was from uh, Cilicia, which is mentioned here. And in chapter 7, later we'll see that he's sort of hanging out with this mob of people. This could have even been Stephen's. Uh, old synagogue before he became a Christian. He has a, a Greek name, so likely enough he was a Hellenistic Jew. We talked about that a little bit last week. Hellenistic Jews were those who, who spoke Greek and had taken on some of the cultural practices of, of uh, Greek culture. Um, and so maybe this would explain why they even began this dispute with Stephen. He was a former member of their synagogue. But either way, uh, these, these people, they have a reason to be more aggressive uh, than, than the Jewish leaders. They're not like those establishment Jews of Jerusalem. They're used to being in charge. But, you see, these people, they would have come from cities where they were the minority, where, where there was a pagan culture all around them. They've moved to Jerusalem to get away from all of that. And then someone, maybe someone from their own synagogue, teaching a different, a different thing. Uh, and, and, you know, even just remember back to verse 7, we saw that there were some of the priests that were becoming obedient to the faith, were converting to Christianity. That would be even worse. Right now they see, look, these Christians, they're, they're even taking away our, our priests to what they're saying. This is, what, this is our religion. This is what we made our way back to Jerusalem out of slavery to be part of, and they're destroying it. You can imagine the, some of the anger and the frustration of these people. But there's a second thing motivating their opposition to Stephen. It has to do with his message, or at least what they focus on in his message. And we see that as they start to instigate people. They try to get people worked up about Stephen, building rumors about what he's teaching. Uh, and then eventually in verse 13, they get these false witnesses even to, to, to say that he is speaking against this holy place and the law. Now, this is a, a new charge. We haven't heard this in the book of Acts. We, we heard it with Jesus, right? He was charged with very similar things. But this is new for Acts, and it helps explain why the people of Jerusalem begin to turn against the Christians. These are the two pillars of Jewish religion at that time. The temple, the law. This is a pretty serious charge they're bringing against Stephen. You touch the temple, you touch the law, you're, you are critiquing God. This is a big deal for them. Now, this is a, a false picture 
of what Stephen would have taught. We know that because of what uh, Jesus said about the temple and the law in the Gospels. We have what he said, and Jesus taught that he was the fulfillment of the temple of the law, not the destroyer of the, these things. He, he actually elevated them. He made them, he, he, he showed what they always pointed to. Jesus doesn't destroy these things. Uh, rather, the, the, the center of Stephen's message would have been Jesus is greater and better than these things. I heard a, a pastor once describe the ceremonial law, the temple, uh, as sort of the, you can think of it as like the fuel rocket on a spaceship. And it was absolutely necessary, right? That fuel rocket, to get the rocket up through the atmosphere, you need that fuel rocket. But also absolutely necessary to get rid of that fuel rocket at the right moment so you can get into orbit. Uh, these, these people, these Jews, they're at the point of a critical decision. All of their prophets had pointed toward this moment. Stephen's about to talk about that in his defense in chapter 7. And they're going to have to decide, do we listen or not? Do we, do we transition into space or do we drop back to earth? And they will stop their ears. They will kill Stephen. But what we're reminded here as we begin to look at Stephen's story is that the success of uh, that the success of a Christian is that our normal life involves a pattern of suffering, of death, of rejection. Uh, sometimes a martyr's death like Stephen, but more often, right, it, it takes the form of, of continual dying to self in repentance. This is part of the daily life of a Christian. Uh, it takes the form of of dying in suffering so that Christ's power might be seen in us. It, it, it takes the, the form of, of dying in sacrifice to love and serve those around us. Jesus promised in this life you will have trouble. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about this theme. He, he, he who watched, Saul, uh, watched Stephen sorry, die tells the church of Philippi, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Or to the Colossian church, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Or to the Corinthian church, he said, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested, may be seen in our mortal flesh. He talks about uh, suffering the loss of all things and sharing in Christ's suffering in order that he might find Christ and be made more like him in his death. Over and over, over again, it is suffering and rejection that is presented as the normal Christian life. What we see in Stephen's life here, the guy who should be the most successful Christian ever, but he was not successful in the ways we tend to think Christians should be successful. He didn't get the perfect marriage and the kids. Maybe he had it briefly. 
Is that what you're tempted to think Christian success looks like? He didn't get wealthy and fund the church's ministry. He didn't even succeed in his career. He wasn't a deacon for very long. He's got no converts to his name. He didn't get to see the gospel spread across the known world. He just got rejected. Maybe some of you feel like you only ever get rejected. Are you an unsuccessful Christian? You don't have to be. Make sure you have the right definition. The normal Christian life involves continual rejection, suffering, and sacrifice. We have to get this into our heads because the goal that God has for you is to make you look like Christ. Not like the successful people of the world. Not like the successful idol image of a Christian that you have in your heads. What is so lovely about this little story here is that we know Stephen was succeeding. It's clear to us, and not just us, but everyone in that courtroom knows it because they look at his face in verse 15, and what do they see? They see the face of an angel. Right? It's totally unexpected. It's very strange. The face of an angel? I mean, what, what does that even look like? Uh, how do they know what it looks like? Uh, the major way the Bible describes angels is they're bright, right? They're shining. That's how it describes angels. And, and how do they get shiny? Well, it's the glory of God flowing through them, reflecting off them. We see this with Moses. Moses' face shone as he came down from Mount Sinai because he just spent all that time in God's presence. It was the favor of God upon him. Jesus' face shone on the Mount of Transfiguration. What was happening there? He was taking away the veil. He was letting his disciples see his glory. It was pouring forth. And now, what's happening? It's shining through Stephen. We can see Jesus pouring out of his face. He's the favor of the Lord saying, listen, this man is full of me. He is rejected for me. He is a successful Christian. Listen to him. And so Stephen is about to speak. And we'll hear about that next week. But this morning, you and I have a choice to make. We must decide if we are willing to accept God's definition of success, or we will continue to insist on living for a worldly charade. It's all been stripped away for Stephen. Is it all stripped away for you? Are you content to merely look like Jesus, even if it means being rejected and suffering with him? Or do you still have some sort of picture of a perfect Christian that you're trying to impose on God's plan for your life? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we want to follow Jesus 
We don't always know, Lord, what it looks like. We look at our lives and realize that we are believing Lies that the world tells us about what it looks like to be successful. Imposing on the plan that you have for us to make us look like Christ, to fill us with him. All our own ideas of what it should look like, Lord. Keep us from that kind of idolatry and instead, may we be satisfied with Christ. Merely, Lord, beginning to look like him. May we be satisfied with the suffering that comes our way, Lord. As you shape, you conform us to his image. And give us strength, Lord. We need it that we might grow, that we might feed on him as Stephen did. So that those around us might see that we are ones who have been with Jesus. Pray this in his name.